Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Buertes. And I'm Jacob Shackman. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new. Hello and welcome everyone to the Polymer Science Podcast. My name is Jacob Sheckman, and today I'm excited to introduce a friend and former colleague of mine, Dr. Brooks Abel. Brooks has been an outstanding graduate researcher at the University of Southern Mississippi. He's actually born and raised in Mississippi and has now worked his way to uh, the University of California, Berkeley as an assistant professor in the Department of Chemistry. All of us are incredibly excited for you to have made this journey happen, Brooks. So if you can tell us a little bit first about, or actually, let me go back and thank you again for being here, man. I, I can't express again how much I appreciate your time. But uh, let's have you talk a little bit about your background. You know, tell us a little bit about where you come from and how you eventually found your way into polymer science. Sure. And thanks for having me on the show. Um, and yeah, Jacob and I go go way back. And so it's nice to come back around and and be able to chat again uh, now that I'm on the other side, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like Jacob said, I'm from Mississippi. So I'm born and raised in McComb, Mississippi, which I like to always tell everyone is the hometown of Britney Spears. So Britney was born in, in McComb and then moved to, uh, to Louisiana not too long after. Uh, but that's my claim to fame that uh, Britney and I probably um, crossed paths at least once or twice. So that's pretty McComb's incredible. Pretty, I yeah. actually didn't know that. <laughs> Hopefully I haven't peaked yet. So maybe I yeah. can live up to her standards. <laughs> so Macomb's a pretty small town, uh, but I did, you know, kindergarten through high school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was thinking architecture at the time, which of course is pretty different than chemistry. And when you want to figure out what you want to do uh, and you don't want to spend a lot of money, it's good to go to a junior college and live at home. So I lived at home, went to junior college, had a couple jobs. So I'd go to class in the morning, deliver office supplies in the afternoon, and then wash dishes on nights and weekends. So pretty uh, uh, unexciting lifestyle. Um, but while I was in junior college, I was able to get prereqs out of the way. And then after my first year, all of my friends were complaining about organic chemistry and general chemistry. And when I was a kid, I was obsessed with aquariums. I'm still, I'm actually about to set one up in my office uh, probably next week. And so from an early age, I was just in love with aquariums. And I didn't realize at the time, but, you know, I would read books and try to learn as much as possible. You know, I'd have fish die, I'd have algae take over. And to solve those problems, I had to learn about biology and learn about chemistry. So I was always in the library. We had five books in our library on aquariums. And I would check them out. And every two weeks, I would recheck them out because that's how long you could you could do that. And so the little card in the back that they probably don't use today, just every every 14 days had a date stamped on it. Um, so I loved research uh, without realizing it. And I love chemistry without realizing it. You know, I learned about pHs and buffers and the nitrogen cycle. So when I was hearing my friends talk about this, I sort of wasn't really set on architecture at that point. Not that there were any architecture classes at the uh, University of Southern or uh, um, Southwest Mississippi Community College. Um, but that piqued my interest, and so I decided I'm, I'm going to at least take a general chemistry class my second year, uh, and then event you know kind of rekindled my my interest in chemistry. My chemistry teacher told me that there's this place called the University of Southern Mississippi an hour away. Even though I grew up in McComb, which is an hour from Hattiesburg, where Southern Miss is, 
I had no idea that there was a polymer program there. Uh, we're pretty isolated in McComb. So I, I mustered up the, um, the strength to get out of my comfort zone and visit uh, for recruitment day. I think they were expecting a lot of people because there were, there were the pizza to um, transfer student ratio was quite high. And so that, that's probably what sealed the deal for me, you know, five boxes per person. Um, there were a couple other students there that actually ended up coming and graduated with their bachelor's and PhDs from Southern Miss. I think it was a, it was a, um, a good recruitment week. Yeah, that pizza really sold them. But once I visited, uh, I knew exactly, you know, what I was going to do next. The, the, once you walk in the building and you see the labs and you meet with the professors, it's just an amazing place. And a lot of people don't expect it to be in South Mississippi, but there's a nice history behind, you know, the origin of polymer chemistry at Southern Miss uh, and how it's developed. And now it's a standalone program and building with amazing resources and faculty. So uh, after visiting, I was 100% sold, you know, signed up, moved to Southern Miss, um, I was a year behind because uh, architecture prereqs and uh, polymer science prereqs are, are not the same. So it actually ended up taking me five years to get my bachelor's. But um, yeah, I, I joined a research group. Um, originally, I was in the research group uh, or a, uh, a research group making uh, proton exchange membranes. So this was Bob Moore. So Bob Moore was there. The first year I started at Southern Miss, and then he moved to Virginia Tech. And so then I joined the lab of Rob Story, um, I guess he was recently retired. And so I switched from proton exchange membranes to cationic polymerizations, which I was really, really interested in, in chemistry after having taken organic. So I was glad to be able to join his group. And so um, that really set my path in terms of being a polymer organic chemist. I loved making small molecules. I loved making big molecules. And so... Um, after I finished my bachelor's, I had the decision, of course, where to go next. And it's generally a good idea to go to a different school for grad school than you did your undergrad. And so I was actually set on going to either UMass or Akron or University of Florida, which also have great polymer programs. Um, but I met with people there and I got, you know, reasonably good vibes and I was interested in the research. But, just didn't, you know, sometimes you, you make decisions based on your gut instincts, right? I just wasn't, I just didn't get it there. And I hadn't even applied to Southern Miss. So I come back, I'm walking around the building one day and none other than Charles McCormick, Chatty Charlie, uh, <laughs> corners me and starts, we start a conversation. And if anyone that knows him, a uh, short conversation usually is about uh, two hours long. Yeah, this and is so not an exaggeration, he, uh, everyone. He, he, gave me the, he gave me the pitch, okay? So I was interested in polymer chemistry. I was interested in uh, drug deliveries and application. And that's exactly what his group was doing. And he was also going to give his students a lot of freedom. Um, so I also like that idea as well. So at the very last second, I, uh, I applied to Southern Miss for grad school, joined um, and took the same, uh, you know, first year of classes uh, like everyone else. And then June 1st joined the McCormick group. And so through gra throughout grad school, uh, we used controlled radical polymerizations to make stimuli responsive polymers, water soluble polymers, um, and, and make those uh, designed for drug delivery, specifically RNA delivery or, or DNA delivery. Um, then I decided I wanted to learn, you know, a different aspect of polymer chemistry. So radicals are great, doing polymerizations in water is great. But if you look at a lot of literature, whether it's small molecular polymers, um, catalysis is this huge, huge component uh, to polymer chemistry. And if you look at catalysts and ligands in the literature, 
you say, how in the world did you come up with that structure? These, you know, these crazy complex structures. And I felt, all right, this is the kind of thing you've got to touch with your own hands and do with your own hands and experience if you really want to understand the field of catalysis. So uh, my wife, who's also uh, an undergrad and PhD at Southern Miss, um, and I were both looking for postdocs. So we landed positions at Cornell in Ithaca, New York. And I was working in the lab with Jeff Coates, who specializes in polymer catalysis. Hey, Brooks, uh, before we before we move on to to the postdoc at Cornell, I wanted to hear a little bit more about the, the research that you did in Dr. McCormick's lab. And specifically, can, can you tell us, uh, you know, for, for those that, that like to listen but are, are very unfamiliar with polymer science, right, the, the difference between doing radical polymerizations and using a catalyst? Yeah, so in, in grad school, we focused on radical polymerizations. And the reason why we, we, we use radical polymerizations to make the types of polymers we were interested in for drug delivery is that radicals are extremely functional group tolerant. So when I say functional groups, um, I, these are, are kind of like the words in a sentence. Okay, so if you think of a molecule as a sentence, it's made up of smaller chunks of atoms. Um, we would call these things like amides and esters. You've probably heard of polyesters, for example. These are polymers that have these ester functional groups in the backbone. Well, when you're carrying out polymerizations, you're, you're doing these polymerizations using monomers that have all of these different functional groups. Amines, alcohols, those are all functional groups. Now, not all polymerization methods work in the presence of different functional groups. So when we're making polymers for drug delivery, we're looking to make water-soluble polymers, they usually have very polar functional groups like alcohols, amines. Um, they usually have positive charges on the polymer or negative charges on the polymer. And a lot of these, the charges or the polar functional groups are not tolerated by actually many polymerization methods. Okay, so uh, either the catalyst will decompose in the presence of these functional groups or even just the, the polymer chain that's growing at the end will react with these functional groups and terminate. And so you wanna actually be able to make a polymer but what's great about radicals is they tolerate many of these function groups. Radicals tolerate water. Water will actually kill most polymerizations. So it's a really great uh, polymerization method uh, to be able to make polymers for drug delivery because those are all the functional groups we're interested in. Uh, one problem with radicals, however, is that they terminate with one another. So if two radicals on the end of one on the end of each polymer chain find one another, they'll react and that'll actually terminate the radical. That's the biggest problem in radical polymerizations. And so a lot of polymers you use on a day-to-day -day basis are produced commercially by radical polymerization. So if you've ever heard of plexiglass, you've got, that's polymethyl methacrylate. Um, you've got polystyrene, low-density polyethylene. These are all made by radical chemistry. But if you want to make very precise polymers for drug delivery, so for example, molecular weight, the length of the polymer chain is extremely important to the polymer properties. What's very difficult to control that if your polymer chains randomly terminate after some period of growth. We want to be able to start all of our polymer chains at the same time, let them all grow at the same rate, and stop them at the same time. So all of our polymer molecules are approximately the same length, because that's going to have a huge effect on, on what we end up, you know, the properties of what we're making. So what controlled radical polymerizations do without getting into the, the mechanism too much is they find a way to make lots of polymer chains using a few radicals. So that decreases the likelihood of two radicals finding one another, but still allows you to make lots of polymer chains. And so we would call this a living polymerization because the polymer chain can keep growing and growing and growing as long as there's monomer around. Um, and so the advantage of that is, again, it allows us to control the length of the polymer chains. You can even initiate and grow a polymer with one type of monomer. Then when you run out of that monomer, you can add a different type 
and then that one will add to the polymer chain. So we make what are called blockopolymers, which is a polymer uh, where one half is one monomer and the other half is another. And those two different blocks can have totally different properties. And so that can allow us to do things like cause the polymers to self-assemble in water. So if half of the polymer hates water and the other half loves water, the part of the polymer that doesn't like water, those will aggregate together. And then the parts that love water, the hydrophilic parts, will assemble around and you'll form this sphere. And these are my cells. These are, these are the same things that happen uh, when you put soap in water. You have a hydrophobic part, a hydrophilic part, and the hydrophobic parts sort of form a, sort, uh, a spherical core surrounded by a hydrophilic corona. And actually, this is similar to the liposomes that are used uh, for the messenger RNA delivery in the COVID vaccines. So you've got these, you know, polyethylene oxide is a water-soluble polymer that's attached to a hydrophobic group. They self-assemble in the micelles, and then the messenger RNA is trapped inside these micelles. And that then is delivered into your body, and it's sort of like a, it's a drug delivery vehicle. Um, that's basically kind of a different approach to what we were after uh, when I was in grad school. We're trying to deliver the messenger RNA to slightly different places, uh, but the same concept there. And you need to be able to have, you know, controlled radical polymerizations or something similar to allow you to make block polymers that you couldn't make um, by some uncontrolled method. Uh, we can also do these polymerizations in water. So what better solvent than water, right? Instead of using toxic organic solvents. So that was kind of the basis behind the chemistry. Now, as far as the strategies, what we were actually making and what we were after, uh, the polymer has to do a lot of different things and it has to do it autonomously, okay? So imagine you have RNA, these are small, uh, we, we specifically were interested in small interfering RNA. So um, a what, few decades ago... What differentiates, a, unless you're about to explain it, I was curious, I don't know what in small interfering RNA is versus just saying yes. RNA. So a few decades ago, um, this thing called RNA interference was discovered. And so it's actually a way in which you can turn off selectively certain genes. So small interfering RNA are these short RNA segments, and they're kind of like a wanted poster where there are enzymes in a cell where if they get a hold of this RNA, they'll go around looking for messenger RNAs that look like this small piece of messenger RNA. And if they find anything that looks like it, they'll snip that messenger RNA in half. So messenger RNA from the perspective of a cell is like a recipe for how to make a protein. So if we think, if we go back to DNA, DNA is like the recipe book for every protein your cell needs to make. But you don't want to put the recipe book in the kitchen where it could get damaged. You keep it hidden away in the nucleus so the recipe book is safe because you only get one per cell. So instead of, instead of risking damaging that, you make copies of the recipes, which we call messenger RNA uh, in, the, in the cell world. And then those copies of those recipes are sent into the kitchen, which is the cell. And then the cell makes the dishes, which would be the proteins. And the proteins are what basically carry out all of the you know, real living functions of, of a cell. So if we can tear up those recipes, those messenger RNAs, before they have a chance uh, to be read and converted into proteins, we can stop the production of proteins. And if you stop the production of proteins that a cell needs to live, you can kill a cell. And so that's the basis behind using small interfering RNA to kill cancer cells. Let's turn off a gene that the cancer cell has that it needs to live, and then the cancer cell will die. So we're basically delivering wow. these genetic wanted posters for those recipes on how to make proteins. And then there's some enzymes that'll come along and rip up that recipe before the, the kitchen staff of the cell has a chance <laughs> to read the recipe and turn it into protein. And if that business needs to make, uh, you know, 
uh, spaghetti and meatballs to stay in business, we'll, we'll tear up that recipe and they'll go out of business. Um, and so that's, that is the, the kind of the broken down concept. But in order to do that, you have to bind and stabilize the RNA. If you put RNA in the blood, it degrades immediately. Okay? It's mm. not going to stick around very long. So you need to stabilize it with a polymer. And polymers are great because, um, as I'll describe, there's a lot of different things we can kind of program the polymer to do. So the first thing you have to do is stabilize the RNA. You then have to find the cell of interest. So in this case, it might be a cancer cell. So you need some sort of targeting group, for example, that can find the cancer cell. Once you've found the cancer cell, you need to get inside of the cancer cell. Once you're inside the cell, you're usually trapped inside these small little compartments called endosomes. And then you have to get out of the endosome into the cytoplasm. And then you have to release your RNA payload. And so the bottleneck of this whole process is the escaping the endosomes. So polymer gets in the cell. You're trapped in these little compartments. If you don't get out, they'll eventually traffic you to a different little compartment called lysosomes. Those will degrade anything that's in there or the endosome will spit whatever's inside of it back out. So if you don't get out of the endosome within a certain amount of time, your RNA gets degraded there. So we have to figure out, all right, how do we make a polymer find a cancer cell? How do we make the polymer get inside the cancer cell? How do we get out of the endosome? And then once the polymer is out of the endosome, it has to know, all right, now I can release my payload. I'm inside of the cytoplasm. So we have to exploit differences in the environments outside of a cell, inside of the cell, inside of the endosome to make the polymer's properties change. And so we look at differences in pH, we look at differences in redox potential, differences in salt concentration, and we make the polymer behave a certain way in each of those environments. So one of the, the biggest things that I focused on was making pH and redox responsive polymers. So the polymer would behave different ways in different environments. So the pH of the blood is uh, pH 7.4, okay? So it's slightly basic. And so we were making polymers, or I was making polymers that were water-soluble at a basic pH. Uh, again, going back to this functional group um, language, I was putting functional groups on half of my polymer uh, called sulfonamides. And so at pHs that are slightly basic, the sulfonamide functional group uh, is ionized. It's negatively charged, and that makes the polymer water-soluble. Okay, that's exactly what we want. We want it water-soluble, so the polymer is soluble in the blood. Uh, we then put targeting groups on the polymer. So a good proof of concept targeting group is this folic acid. Cancer cells are really hungry. They need lots of food. Folate is involved in rapid growth. So they usually overexpress folic acid receptors. There's a lot of different targeting groups you can use, but if you can prove that one of them works, then you could you know, envision supplanting that targeting group with others. So we would put targeting groups like folic acid on the polymer. So that helps it selectively find and get inside of uh, a cancer cell because the cancer needs the folic acid Within the cell, it sort of brings it in. But now we're stuck in these endosomes. Now, folic acid can get out of the endosome, but folic acid attached to a polymer cannot get out of the endosome. So up to this point, our polymer has been totally water-soluble, but these sulfonamic group, what's, groups, what's special is that at lower pHs, they become hydrophobic, okay? So they, they lose their negative charge. Now, the pH of an endosome is around five to six, so it's more acidic than the pH of the blood. And so we designed these sulfonamides to be just the right, we would call this PKA, in other words, like how easy is it to, to protonate or deprotonate it? How easy is it to go from that negatively charged state to a neutral charged state? So we chose sulfonamide derivatives that are water-soluble and negatively charged at pH 7.4, but they become neutral at pH 5 to 6. When they become neutral, they become very hydrophobic. 
And so the, the endosomal membrane is just like your cell membrane. It's a lipid bilayer. So it's kind of like a, a thin membrane that's hydrophobic on the inside and hydrophilic on the outside. So if your polymer goes from being water-soluble to insoluble in water inside these little endosomal compartments, it'll actually um, kind of punch its way through the endosome. It kind of rips it open. It starts to interact with the hydrophobic uh, lipid bilayer of the endosome. It disrupts its structural integrity, and then the endosome ruptures. So that, so so now the, that new chemistry from, from going from hydrophilic to hydrophobic being protonated and, and no longer charged, that allows it to, to interact with that endosomal wall? Exactly. Amazing. And that's what was key is we had to find also just it has to happen at just the right pH range. It's got to be totally water soluble at 7.4, the pH of the blood, but then it has to undergo this transition from water soluble to water insoluble in that five to six pH range. So there's a very specific window we've got to work in. If it becomes hydrophobic in the blood, then it can actually um, do the same thing to your red blood cells. And so it would damage your red blood cells oh if it started becoming uh, <laughs> you know, hydrophobic in the blood. So, so you've got to get it just right. Okay, yeah. And so we had polymers that were, were you know, they, they behaved exactly as we wanted. So we would refer to this as pH responsive. So at one pH, it has one set of properties. At a different pH, it has another set of properties. How long and did it take, well, how long was the process of finding out what properties you needed in these polymers and then saying, now I have the polymers that we needed with these exact properties? So we weren't the first to come up with the concept of, have a polymer that becomes hydrophobic in the endosome and it can punch its way out. There's a lot of other strategies um, that people have, you know, considered or mm -hmm. come up with to get out of the endosome. Um, but we knew we needed a pH responsive polymer. The hard thing is how do we make something with a very narrow range of pHs that it can behave totally different? Yeah. A lot of polymers that people have been using sort of have a gradient of properties. They're not completely water soluble at 7.4, not completely hydrophobic at pH 5 to 6. So we identified the sulfonamide as a functional group where we could, we could tune how easily it does that. We could tune how hydrophilic or hydrophobic it is at those different pHs. And so um, that allowed us to design um, a monomer that would have the sulfonamide group that we could then turn into a polymer that then itself would have these pH responsive properties. So the concept there on paper is not that difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, getting to the polymers took, I would say, three to four years. Yeah. Not because the polymer itself was necessarily difficult to make uh, in general, but this chemistry we were using, you know, uh, there, there are different types of controlled radical polymerizations. We were using one called reversible addition fragmentation chain transfer. Uh, quite a mouthful. But it turns out that the way this chemistry works um, there was a, a side reaction that no one had been aware of in this polymerization method. So the, the type of monomer we were working with would be called uh, an aerial methacrylamid. So methacrylamids are a class of double bond monomers. And these double bonds are actually water undergoing reaction with radicals. Well, there's a nitrogen and a, and a carbon, double ox, carbon double bond to an oxygen hanging off of that double bond. And without getting into the great details, that functional group, that we call an amide, on the very end of the polymer chain, when you have this sulfonamide group that we were attaching on that amide, that amide was actually killing the end of the polymer chain. So that very last monomer unit was the problem. And it was because we're putting this sulfonamide group on, on the monomer. So 
the sulfonamide solves one problem. It's exactly what we might want for drug delivery, but it was actually causing a problem with, uh, with the chemistry. So it actually took um, quite a while to actually figure out why it was doing this. And once we figure out why it's doing that, we can then propose a strategy for solving the problem. And so we had to tweak, you know, some of the reaction conditions and temperature and solve it. But we were actually able to solve that problem of that termination event occurring just because of the sulfonamide functional group. So after doing that, you know, we're three years in, and uh, now we're able to make polymer. So we can make blockopolymers uh, where one half of the polymer binds uh, or is attached to the small interfering RNA. Um, and then this will actually bring up the, the next stimulus that I'll talk about. So you can attach RNA in, to polymers in different ways. So RNA is negatively charged. So if you have a positively charged polymer, it'll stick electrostatically because positive and negative charge like one another. Um, another way you can do this is you can attach RNA to the polymer via a disulfide linkage. So a disulfide is just when you have two sulfur atoms attached to one another. So if you put a sulfur atom on your polymer and you put a sulfur atom on the end of the RNA, you can connect them together via this disulfide linkage. Uh, and I'll explain a little bit why the disulfide is uh, particularly useful. Like, there's a lot of different ways we could have done that, but the disulfide um, is really useful for, for triggered release of the RNA. So yeah, it takes sometimes a lot longer. Um, we made the exact same polymers we were anticipating uh, on making. It just took a while to figure the chemistry out. So now we're making our polymers. We can make blockopolymers. Um, they have these sulfonamide groups. We prove that they have the pH responsive properties we want in just the right pH range. And so now you've got polymers that can go inside of endosomes. Okay, They can punch out of the endosome. But now your RNA is attached to the polymer, and you have to get the RNA uh, to release from the polymer and into the cell. And so this is where the disulfide comes along. So our polymer changed its properties in response to pH at first to get in the endosome and get out of the endosome. Now, once you're in the cell, you need to, you can exploit a different, different, uh, a different uh, change in environment. So inside of a cell, we would consider that a reducing environment. In other words, um, it's an environment where oxygen doesn't like to stick around for very long. So we need oxygen to live. The reason why we use oxygen to live is because it's a very reactive molecule. And if you react that with other molecules, we can use that to generate um, things that provide energy for us, right? We react oxygen with glucose to release that energy. We use that uh, to live. Now oxygen, because it's so reactive, can wreak havoc inside of a cell. So the cell likes to be in control of oxygen when it's inside, because it could undergo all these reactions with all of these molecules inside of your cell. So inside of your cell, there's a, there's a molecule that protects from oxygen, and it's called glutathione. So glutathione is a very simple, uh, it's, it comprises three amino acids, and your cells are full of it. But what glutathione does is it can kind of neutralize, or re we'll call it re reduce, to use the chemistry term, it reduces oxygen. Um, it can do the same thing to disulfides. So we've got this sulfur-sulfur bond. When it reduces the sulfur-sulfur bond, what it's doing is it's cleaving it in half. So it gives you back those two sulfur atoms, one on the polymer, one on the RNA. And so we can exploit that everywhere up to this point, oxygen's been around and oxygen likes to favor the formation of that sulfur-sulfur bond. But as soon as you get inside of the cell, oxygen's no longer around, you're in this reducing environment, glutathione will just snip that sulfur-sulfur bond. And so that's the stimulus that we'd like to use for releasing RNA in the cell. So our polymer was targeted with folic acid got in the endosome, changed pH, that caused the polymer to become hydrophobic. It punched its way out of the endosome. 
Now there's a change in the redox potential. We're in a reductive environment, which cleaves disulfides, and that's how we release the RNA into the cell. And so then the cells, and then, and then the polymer's done. So now it's up to the cell to take the RNA and then use that to um, rip all of the, the recipes. Right, that. right. And so, uh, yeah, so getting to that point requires a lot of chemistry and a lot of uh, upfront design of the polymer. And so that's, those are two good strategies, relying on pH responsiveness and redox responsiveness uh, to sort of accomplish the goal of getting to, getting inside of and releasing RNA in the cell. Yeah, that's an incredible, incredible journey with what a hell of a goal at the end, which you guys you essentially did it. So that's, it, it sounds like you, you got to the point by the end of your PhD to, uh, to have a, uh, say a working model micelle with this polymer. Or these actually correct? didn't even, they weren't even micelles. It oh, was they, just one polymer chain. We could attach RNA to it. And they did not self-assemble in solutions okay. because they weren't hydrophobic right. initially. weren't self-assembling in the mice. Right. Oh, I'm okay. Okay. It wasn't until they were in the cell that they started becoming partially hydrophobic. Mm-hmm. So how how would this delivery work? Is it it's essentially it's a, a injected in some solution into the bloodstream and it, it finds its way into cells? Correct. You would you would envision it being intravenous. If you were to say eat something like this, if you had a pill, mm-hmm. um, the, your, this, the enzymes and acids in your stomach would almost certainly degrade the RNA. Our RNA is not a, not a, protected by the polymer in a way that it would survive that. So that's why the COVID vaccines or most vaccines are injected intravenously because getting genetic material uh, through the gastrointestinal tract into your bloodstream is very, very difficult. So um, the fact that antiviral medications are coming out, they don't necessarily rely on messenger RNA, um, but that could be oral uh, that work by different means. Usually you're releasing a small molecule um, is, is, is pretty exciting uh, to be able to just take something you know, orally to sort of um, accomplish what sure. DNA or RNA would accomplish, but um, using you know, a very easy format in the form of a pill. But sure. yeah, these types of genetic uh, or I wouldn't call them genetic treatments, but these RNA-based treatments basically always have to be administered intravenously mm-hmm. to sort of bypass those other challenges that you would have to overcome. All right. So so while you were here at USM, you essentially became an absolute master of controlled radical polymerizations. And then it sounded like you, you were driven to investigate catalysis more, and you chose a, a postdoc position at Cornell to to learn more about catalysis-driven polymerizations? Yes. So I moved to Cornell. Actually, my wife and I had spent our entire lives in Mississippi up to this point, and we moved to Ithaca, New York in January. <laughs> um, <laughs> now we, unfortunately, we were, we were prepared for snow and cold weather, and we got there, and there was no snow on the ground. It was 50 degrees outside. Oh, great. So we, were pretty, we were disappointed. But sure enough, two months later, there was a foot and a half of snow on the ground. Um, and so we built our first proper snowman uh, that wasn't uh, comprising all of the snow in the yard right. <laughs> when, we, when we got half an inch of snow as kids. So I worked with uh, Jeff Coates, who has spent his entire career developing catalysts for various polymerization methods. And one thing that's different about his group uh, and, and research as compared to what I did in grad school is the scale at which you think about so we're making polymers for drug delivery. We're making tiny amounts of polymers. And you wouldn't even call these plastics, right? These are very uh, special exotic things. You're not going to make a grocery bag 
out of a stimuli responsive, redox responsive uh, <laughs> drug delivery polymer. So I'm a polymer chemist. I had an undergrad degree and a, and a PhD in polymer chemistry, but I've never actually made something that you would really call plastic, uh, which you would think is, you know, the first thing you do as a polymer chemist. So here I am well into my career. Now I'm, now I'm hoping to make plastic. And so that's what Jeff's group does. They make plastic, really well-defined plastic. So kind of those concepts I was telling you about the advantages of controlled radical polymerizations. Um, you can make block polymers. There's a lot of things you could do. A lot of polymerizations fit under this umbrella that we've called living. Um, they basically, the, me the way in which you make the polymers, that exact chemistry may differ, uh, but the end result is the same. You can make a lot of different things. You can make branched polymers that are shaped like stars. You can make block polymers. And then more important, you can control exactly how long the polymer chain is. Because when you're talking about plastics, you know, materials with physical properties, the length of the polymer chain rules the game. Okay, so that's that is aside from the exact uh, chemical composition of the polymer, the most important thing to control is its molecular weight. So there's two areas I ended up working on, um, or two main areas of catalysis I worked on. The first one was anionic ring opening polymerizations to make polyesters. So there's a lot of different ways you can make polyesters by ring opening polymerizations, but we were focused on one in which you polymerize epoxides, which are three-membered rings, so they're really strained, uh, and there's a single oxygen atom in the ring, and cyclic anhydrides. And so anhydrides, again, is another type of functional group. Um, it's a, it's a ring-shaped um, molecule when I consider them as cyclic anhydrides. And if you develop the catalyst correctly, you can ring open these monomers in an alternating fashion. So an epoxide will open, and then an hydride will open, and then an epoxide, and then an hydride. And when you do it like that, you end up with a polyester. There's a lot of ways to make polyesters, but the advantage of this is, A, it's one of these living processes, so we could make block polymers, et cetera. Um, but also, there are a lot of epoxides out there. They're easy to make, commercially available. There's a lot of cyclic anhydrides out there, easy to make, commercially available. A lot of these molecules can also be made biorenewably. And so when you have lots of different starting materials, you can mix and mash them to get a lot of different properties. And so that's what's really nice and versatile about this method is that, you know, you have this the potential to make lots of different polymers with lots of different properties. But catalysis, of course, is how you carry out this polymerization. You can't just throw an epoxide and cyclic anhydride together. They're just going to sit there till the end of time. Um, there's also lots of side reactions that can happen. Uh, kind of like I told you about the side reaction that uh, occurred in, in the radical polymerization research that I was, I was working in. Similar, uh, you know, problems exist for all polymerizations. There's always these sort of side reactions. And the catalyst, um, what a catalyst is, is it's a molecule um, itself is not consumed in the reaction. So you can think of it as, um, it's a molecule that helps put together the monomers. So you have a polymer chain, all the action happens at the end of the chain. You're attaching monomers over and over. The catalyst is what's helping to add these monomers over and over. And so if, that's why the monomers don't react by themselves. We need some molecule around to help them react. So obviously developing the catalyst is extremely important. We want to add the monomers in a certain way. We want it to be perfectly alternating, epoxide and hydride, epoxide and hydride, and so on. We want to stop these side reactions. And at the end of the day, you don't want to wait around for a week for your polymerization to be done. You want it to be done quickly. And then you want to use the least amount of catalyst possible because they're oftentimes expensive to make. Uh, in reality, you don't purify polymers. You, 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 you know, at Eastman Chemical Company, they make a polyester. Whatever's used, whatever catalyst is used to make that polyester stays in the plastic mm -hmm. on those scales. 
So we also have to think about that. How do we use the least amount of catalyst possible? And so um, most of these ring opening copolymerizations that I've, I've just described, epoxide and hydride reactions use two catalysts. So they're different, but they work together to carry out the reaction. Um, the problem is when you have two catalysts working together, if you use less and less catalysts, those catalyst molecules, it's harder for them to come together and carry out the reaction. And so one thing I focused on is how do I take these two catalysts that work together and actually attach them together? So when you use less and less catalysts, they're not getting further and further apart from one another. It's not harder and harder for them to work together. They're always stuck together. So they're always forced to work together uh, and, and you don't have that issue. So these catalysts would in theory work really well with only a small amount of catalyst around. And so I spent, um, I worked with a graduate student on this project and we worked side by side and it took us two years to find a catalyst that works well. Um, just synthetically, it was very difficult to take these two catalyst components and just attach them together. Um, it's not trivial. There's a reason why everyone uses them separately. So actually designing a catalyst uh, with them attached was, was difficult. Um, and so the grad student and I, between the two of us, we had about 2,000 lab notebook pages Jeez. just to get to this one catalyst. And that's when I mentioned that it's hard to just pick up and learn catalysis from a book. You have to experience it mentally, emotionally, physically. <laughs> you spend months trying to make a catalyst. And then in one reaction, you'll learn that it doesn't work. And then you go back to the drawing board. Oh, my goodness. And so understanding that process is why I wanted to do a postdoc where I focused on catalysis. Because you develop sort of the skills and, and the gut instincts um, to figure out you know, how to go about designing catalysts. And you also develop a resolve that you spend months making a molecule and then, then one reaction, that molecule lets you down and then you go back to the drawing board and start over. And so fortunately after two years, we were able to hit on a catalyst. Um, in the end, it actually ended up solving a lot of problems we didn't necessarily intend for the catalyst to solve. It's hard to design upfront something that's going to stop all of these side reactions. It's going to work well, low, low, low catalyst loadings uh, and things like that. So it was reasonably, you know, it wasn't the fastest catalyst in the world. If we're going to go back and keep working, we would make it even faster. So the reactions, you know, took hours. It'd be nice if they were done in say minutes, but that's, that's, you know, where that project ended up. And uh, currently in the group, it's in the application phase, right? Chemistry always has a little bit more, you can always optimize something, but uh, the group is actually using these catalysts now to make materials for other applications, which is the, the goal, right? You want to make a catalyst that can then be used uh, for making polymers where people care about the polymers. So this is what I did. I focused on for roughly half of my postdoc. Um, but during this time, I was always, I was never actually paid to make these catalysts per se. To pay the bills, I was making polymer electrolytes for lithium ion batteries. So I, I worked with a lot of graduate students in the COATS group. And so during this time, I'm making polymers that will sit between the anode and cathode of a, a lithium ion battery. And the role of the polymer is to sort of separate the two apart from one another. So just a brief breakdown on how batteries work. You have an anode. And if we're talking about lithium batteries, there are there's lithium metal in the anode. There's different ways of which can be attached, but you have lithium on one side. The other side, you have a cathode. And when your battery is charged, all of the lithium is at the anode. And then you have something in between the anode and cathode. They can't touch one another, they're short, but you need something that lithium ions can move back and forth through. And usually those are uh, organic solvents. So you've probably seen YouTube videos where someone stabs a battery and it catches on fire. That's because the anode and cathode touch one another, they get really hot, 
And these organic solvents um, that sit between them uh, are flammable and they catch on fire. So a potential solution to that is to use polymers. Okay, polymers are not volatile. Uh, they're generally not nearly as flammable as these small molecule organic chemicals. And they're also mechanically robust. So you, sh you should be able to keep the anodic cathode from touching. Um, however, the polymer needs to allow lithium ions to move back and forth. So the lithium actually has, ions have to be soluble in the polymer, if you think of it that way. And that's actually difficult to do because polymers are solids. It's hard to get ions to dissolve in polymers. And so that's the challenge we were after. How do we make polymers that allow ions to move back really fast? Uh, because you don't want to wait forever for your battery to charge. Okay? The thing that limits how fast, one of the things that limits how fast you can charge your battery is how fast these ions can move back and forth. And unfortunately, polymers slow down the movement. So we're trying to increase how fast ions can move back and forth and make sure the polymer is stable so you can charge your battery over and over and over without it degrading, kind of like your cell phone battery does after a few years. It goes from lasting for you know one or two days down to you know six hours. So that's the goal. And so we had, you know, I was approaching this from a lot of different directions. Meanwhile, I was trying to develop uh, catalysts that could polymerize epoxides and anhydrides. And um, one of the classes of polymers we were working on for lithium ion batteries were called polyacetals. So polyacetals are a pretty simple class of polymers. They basically have, you know, if we talk about polymers, we usually refer to the backbone of a polymer. So if the polymer is a really long chain, all of the atoms that are connected together in that chain refer to as the backbone. So polyacetals only have carbons and oxygens in their backbones. And the, the nice thing about oxygen is oxygen atoms love lithium ions. So it's really nice because the polyacetals can dissolve lithium ions reasonably well. So we were varying how many oxygen and carbon atoms were in the backbone just to systematically study the effect of oxygen content on how well lithium ions move. If you have too many oxygens, the lithiums love the polymer too much and they get stuck they don't want to move to the other side. If you don't have enough, the lithium ions don't move into the polymer membrane. So we were looking for sort of like the sweet spot there and trying to study how all of that worked. Um, but synthetically, it wasn't that challenging to make polyacetals. You take a cyclic acetal monomer. Again, this is a ring opening reaction. So um, cyclic molecules oftentimes are a little bit strained and you need a reason for the monomer to turn into polymer in the first place. We would call that thermodynamics. And when you open this ring, you release a little bit of the ring strain, okay? And that is actually how the polymer works, because every time it adds uh, to a cyclic acetal, opens the ring up, and it helps relieve a little bit of that strain. And so that's why it likes to make the polymer. Now, it's not a lot of strain, okay? It's just a little bit, but just enough to help favor the ring opening. And then we'll come back to talk about why having a little bit of strain, but not too much strain in a ring, is really important for another use of polyacetals. So we're making these polyacetals. We were the chefs at Cornell, and we would ship them off to people that actually knew how to do the proper characterization and study you know, the electrochemical aspects of the polyacetals. So we're making these polymers. Another, a different graduate student and I, uh, Rachel Snyder, who's now, uh, who got her PhD last year. She's now um, uh, at DuPont. And so we were uh, kind of frustrated because we would have to run these polymerizations four or five times, because again, remember I said molecular weight is really important to properties. Um, we were using a method called cationic polymerization. Okay, so if you're gonna pick three, the three main methods of making polymers, you have radical reactions, you have cationic reactions, and you have anionic reactions. This is just talking about what is on the end of the polymer. So in the case of these cationic reactions, there's a positive charge on the end of the polymer chain, and that's what's reacting with monomer over and over. But there were no well-controlled or living cationic polymerizations of cyclic acetals. 
And so we would run the reaction five times and we get five different molecular weights. And we would just pick the one that was closest to the one we sent to our collaborators last time. And the other four would just go into a drawer and sit in a, and sit in a vial um, unused. And so the, the chemical characterization takes a lot of time. We were just the chefs. We were able to crank polymer out. We would, we would throw away four of the five batches. And we had some time on our hands. And we decided, well, let's, let's come up with a living cation polymerization of cyclic acid towels. What would that look like? So we started, you know, conceptualizing what would, what would the chemistry have to accomplish? What would the molecules look like? What would the catalyst look like? Um, and, and drawing these things out on paper based on other types of cation polymerizations, we use those as inspiration. So um, actually one of the, the first polymerization I ever did as an undergrad was a cation polymerization. And so I, I had this sweet spot for cation polymerizations and I already knew enough of the strategies for how to control cation polymerizations that I was actually able to bring that in all the way back to my postdoc while making batteries <laughs> or making polymer batteries. And so it literally was things I learned as an undergrad that allowed me uh, to, to work, you know, Rachel and I to, to solve the problems needed to develop a living cationic polymerization of cyclic acid towels. So sure enough, you know, we figure it out. We basically, you know, these reactions are, are catalyzed by um, what are called Lewis acids. It's just a class of, of, of molecules that, um, bind to oxygen really well. And so it binding to oxygen um, or it binding to what we had on the end of the polymer chain basically allowed the cations to form in the first place without going into too much detail. So we found one of them that worked. We basically sat down, we looked through every Lewis acid we had uh, in the lab, which was a lot. And we designed a set of experiments and controls. And we said, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna run as many reactions as we can at least. So we just spent all day long in the glove box setting up reactions, you know, in a nitrogen atmosphere. And we found one catalyst out of all the catalysts we tried that worked, um, indium chloride. So um, indium chloride is nice. It's, it's something you can buy. We don't have to spend a year making the catalyst like I was doing for my other project. And so indium worked and indium worked really, really well. So if we wanted a certain molecular weight, we could hit it exactly every single time. And the other thing is, if we want something that's really a short polymer might be a few thousand grams per mole. So let's say you want 20 monomer units in your polymer. We could target that. We could also hit 2000 monomer units in the polymer or anything in between. Now you don't need a really big polymer for batteries. That's actually a bad thing. You, the polymer chains can't move around well if they're, if they're really big. Um, but you always want to push your chemistry to the limits when you develop a new reaction. So we, we saw, all right, how big can we go? So we started making these really high molecular weight polyacetals and just physically in our hands, we were holding, you know, we would make the polymer and we would just kind of handle it. And we're like, this feels like plastic. Uh, everything we've made up to this point, they're really short chains. They're kind of waxy. This, this feels like plastic. <laughs> and so uh, Rachel decided, well, I'll just melt this into a dog bone. Dog bones are, uh, they're plastic um, samples that are shaped like dog bones, but we use those to test the tensile properties. So that basically a little plastic strip that's wider on either end, you clamp the ends and you pull on it and you see how much force it takes to, to stretch it. Well, surprisingly, some of the polyacetal derivatives we were making, if they were high enough in molecular weight, had tensile properties just like polyethylene or propylene, actually better. It was actually harder to stretch and break our polymer than some of these polyolefins that Polyethylene is number one in the world. Polypropylene is number two in the world, polymer-wise. There's no option for degrading those polymers. There's no option for uh, turning those polymers back into monomer. They just have one fate right now, and that's the landfill or to be burned. 
So we realized right away, okay, well now we've got a polymer uh, that has really great properties, something like polyolefins. But there's something in our back pocket that we already knew that wasn't really important to this point for, for the point of view of making uh, polymer electrolytes for batteries. But we knew if you heat these polymers up high enough, they'll turn back to monomer. So that comes back to this whole idea of ring strain. There's just enough ring strain to open up to favor forming polymer. But in the polymer world, um, polymers actually don't, polymers are in sort of a struggle. They wanna be monomer, but they also wanna be polymer. And so the way you favor whether polymer wants to be a polymer or it wants to be monomer is you play games with the temperature. So to simplify things at higher temperatures, uh, polymers prefer to turn back into monomer. At lower temperatures, monomer prefers to turn into polymers. So if you heat these polymers up, they actually will depolymerize back to monomer. And so that's actually a property that polyacetals have. That's actually how we made the monomer in the first place, is we make these short, short polymers that then heat up and they turn into monomers. So we knew exactly right away we could turn these um, back into monomer. Now, why that's important is this is a concept known as chemical recycling. You make a polymer, you use it in some application. Currently, uh, you, you really only have two options um, for what to do with that plastic at the end of its life. And that's, of course, probably one of the biggest challenges in polymer science right now is these hundreds of millions of tons of plastics we produce every year. Um, only about 8% is recovered for recycling. And of that 8%, only a couple percent actually makes it back into um, the original stream as uh, say, you know, virgin material, something that has the same properties the first time around. When, when you see the recycling symbol, it's a, it's, a, it's a loop, right? But actually when you recycle plastic, it's not a loop. Um, when you melt something down and you, it's mixed in with a bunch of other plastic waste, you've got the ingredients label on your shampoo bottle, there's a little bit of Gatorade left behind, uh, pigments, dyes, plasticizers, additives, all these things are contaminating the plastic. So when you mount it down, it's contaminated with a little bit of other types of plastic, even after it's been sorted. Um, the material you make afterwards is lower, has a lower value and the properties aren't the same. So usually they have um, inferior properties to the first time around. So you can't infinitely melt down and recycle plastic. So we call that downcycling because the properties are, are reduced as compared to the original material. That is the fate of most recycled plastics. So there's this other way uh, of recycling plastics um, known as chemical recycling where you actually turn the polymer back to the molecules it's made from. And you can isolate those molecules from all the other plastic trash, and you can remake the polymer from scratch. So you can get the exact properties you wanted from the very beginning. You don't have all these impurities sticking around. And so that's a really great viable way to handle the recycling problem when it comes to plastic waste. And so polyacetals, because they depolymerize back to monomer, are by definition chemically recyclable. So we've got a material that we can make really high molecular weight versions of. And it, we've, we've, we actually you know, set the record for highest molecular weights achievable um, of, of these polyacetal derivatives. They have amazing properties like polyolefins, you know, number one and number two polymers in the world. And then we can depolymerize them back to monomer. So it's checking a lot of boxes at this point. So now, oh, sorry, continue. Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I will, I was sort of wondering now, First, I'm curious how how difficult it is to to isolate those monomers that you've um, you've broken down from the polyacetal. How difficult is it to to isolate from the the other trash polymers that you can't really do anything with? 
it's very easy. <laughs> awesome. So you're heating these polymers up to degrade them. Um, from a practical point of view, how do you get the monomer away from all the trash? Right. Okay, you depolymerize your polymer, turn it into monomer. Well, an easy way to do that is just distill the monomer over. You heat it up, the monomer boils, and you can collect it. All the other trash gets left behind because it, it's not going to boil. Mm -hmm. Very, very fortunately, one of the, the polyacetal derivative that had the best properties in terms of you know mechanical properties that behave like polyethylene, polypropylene, um, is a very small, it's a five-atom ring. It has two oxygens and three carbons. Has a very low boiling point. It's around 70 or so degrees Celsius, which is, you know, in, in, in terms of boiling points, you know, water is 100 degrees C. We don't have any trouble boiling water. You do that when you make pasta or you iron your clothes. This stuff boils very easily. So as soon as the monomer is formed, we're heating it up already above mm -hmm. the boiling point of the monomer, and it just distills over if we do this in a distillation setup. Wow, yeah. So we took our polymer that we made and we mixed it literally with garbage. We, uh, Rachel and I went home to our recycling bins and our trash cans. And so if you look underneath your cup, you'll see a recycling code number um, inside of the recycling code triangle. And so there are seven recycling codes, one through seven. And so we went and we made sure we found a plastic for every recycling code value. Now, most of those actually aren't even recyclable, just so you know, um, even though they have the recycling code symbol there uh, in the real world. Um, number seven is actually uh, miscellaneous. So anything that doesn't fit into the first six is just lumped into number seven. So we had all of these different plastics. They were from actual things that we drank out of or we ate out of. And we, you know, they had dyes and pigments and plasticizers. We had a solo cup in there. You know, we had a Gatorade bottle, um, biodegradable plastics, you know, those, those green cups that you get, um, all sorts of stuff. And if you heat the polymer up by itself or you heat the polymer up with plastic, nothing happens, actually. They're actually really stable to high temperatures. But going back to the whole catalysis thing, if you add the right molecule, it'll help the polymer depolymerize. So fortunately, it was very easy to, to depolymerize these. The catalyst we used was just an acid. So in the presence of acid and heat, these polymers turn back into the cyclic acetal very easily. And acids are cheap and there's lots of kinds of them. We actually used a solid acid. Um, it's basically a polymer that's also acidic, mm -hmm. and we just threw it in a flask. So you can just use it over and over and over. So you can keep throwing in polymer plastic waste, and that acid just sticks around. It doesn't distill over as well. Gotcha. And so we had our polymer. We had all this trash, literally, uh, in, a, in a flask. And, um, you know, we have a mechanical stir, and we heat it up. And, you know, we have a, good vi a cool video of this where trash is spinning around, and then after a couple minutes, it gets up to temperature and you start seeing this clear liquid come over into um, another flask that we have attached. Where, where, do you, where is that video? Can I post a link somewhere when I set up this episode? Yeah, I, 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 can, uh, I can text it to you. Um, yeah, yeah, great. I'll, great. I'll, I'll email you a copy of the video, but it's, it's got all of, the, all of the trash. It's a 30-minute time lapse. And so in 30 minutes, we broke down all of the polymer we put in the flask and we got back 90 of the mass we put in there. You cut out so, a little bit. I think I heard 98% you said? Yes. Wow. So the 2% awesome. that was left behind was probably a few little droplets that were stuck, you know, left behind in the flask. So sure. basically we got complete recovery um, of our polymer. We converted it all back to monomer. And then we take that monomer, we repolymerize it, and we have perfectly pristine polymer all over again. And the monomer is actually just as clean as what you buy from a chemical supplier. It's actually probably a little bit cleaner. Um, you know, we can, we can analyze and, and measure the purity 
of the monomer. And once we distilled it over, we didn't have to do any further purification. So none of the other junk, uh, all of those, you know, dyes and pigments and plasticizers and everything that's in that flask, none of it came over, just the monomer. And so um, it's a pretty remarkable to, to be able to just take actual garbage uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and isolate your pure monomer that you can then turn back into pristine polymer. So you're not getting a degraded polymer back, right? You can make exactly what you had the first time. The beauty of that is you can even make a, you can take that that acetyl monomer and you can make a different moleculate, right? So we could take a, you know, an, an air pillow that you might use for an Amazon uh, package, recycle that, and then take that polymer or that monomer and turn it back into a shorter polymer and use it for lithium ion battery. And then we could take that polymer and we could turn it back into some other applications. So not only are you you're recovering pristine you know, monomer that you can turn into pristine polymer, but you can change the molecular weight of that polymer and then change its applications. So rather, you know, then recycling a polymer that has a given molecular weight, you're stuck with that when you melt right. it down and use it again. That is incredible, genuinely amazing and incredible. So, I mean, the idea essentially is that we would take this chemical technology that you're developing and adapt our current, you know, uh, recycling garbage infrastructure to, to work with these materials. Exactly. And so there's a big push. There's a lot of different potential strategies, and there's not going to be one strategy to the, the plastics problem. Um, different polymers uh, will require different solutions to recycle. Some polymers we're making, there's no option. Not every polymer can turn into monomer. Some of them, if you heat them up, they just, they're going to burn right. before they can return back into monomer. And so polyethylene and polypropylene, there's really not a lot of options to recover it. There's one strategy called upcycling, where you get one more use out of the polymer, where you actually chemically modify the polymer to give it new properties that you can then use in a different application. But then once you've used it in that application, that's that's the end that's of it. That's the end of it. So that's a strategy to use all of the plastic waste we have now to get one more use out of it. But it's not truly a circular solution to um, the plastics problem. And so chemical recycling is really a, a kind of an idealized view of, of plastics recycling. Let's just turn it back to what we made it from over and over and over. Maybe you lose a few percent each time, but that's better than losing 92% of your plastic uh, like we're doing now and, and then getting back an inferior material than what you started with. So what, what are you doing within your group now to optimize this process? So my group is actually, we have the same goals in mind to make infinitely recyclable materials using this chemical recycling um, concept. So again, like I said, not any, any polymer can be chemically recycled by depolymerization. So we are starting from the beginning thinking what polymer, if heated, could turn back into the monomer it's made from. So that's already the selection we're doing up front. But a lot of these materials, again, they don't have controlled methods of synthesis, or maybe they're, we're trying to make a polymer that doesn't exist. We can envision the, the polymer um, and we need to find a way to make it. So I've actually moved on from the cyclic acetal work uh, mm -hmm. to new areas. And so I, I was really a big believer in sort of starting you know, over independently in my career, totally different challenges. Um, it's easy to sort of continue doing what you were doing, but um, if you really want to force yourself to dig deep and come up with new ideas, leave the old ones behind and, and start over. And so that's what we're doing now is we're approaching sustainability from every aspect, from where does the monomer come from? How do you make the monomer? 
How do you make the polymer? And then what do you do with the polymer on the back end? So making a polymer itself could be a, you know, a sustainability issue. If you have to use lots of solvents, toxic metals as catalyst, if it requires a lot of you know, heat or energy to make the polymer, that's not sustainable. So we're trying to find reactions that you can just do open to air at room temperature. So remember, I, I mentioned that most polymerizations don't tolerate water. They don't tolerate oxygen. There's right. always some, you know, you can't just do the reaction out in the air because there's water and oxygen in the air. So usually that's that's a that's a, a no-no for these controlled polymerizations. But we're trying to develop controlled polymerizations uh, that you could just do in a beaker on your desk. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a quote um, that I'll paraphrase that the ideal chemical reaction is one in which an untrained operator can pour impure reagents into a bathtub and out the drain comes pure product. Okay. <laughs> now, chemists, like we like our fancy, sophisticated reactions that only we're good enough to do. But in reality, if you want to make 100 million tons of something per year, it's got to be pretty, uh, pretty robust right. chemistry. Right. And so it's actually it's easy to come up with a difficult solution. It's difficult to come up with an easy or simple solution. So we're trying to go through the go for the simple solution, which is, um, you know, bathtub chemistry. <laughs> sure. So that's that's the challenge uh, for the chemistry. But then while developing that chemistry, we also are you know further selecting and narrowing down. All right. We have to make polymers that are chemically recyclable. We have to make polymers that can come from bio-renewable resources. Uh, and, and doing all of this, is, you know, in, in one go is, is difficult. There's a lot of boxes you have to check. Uh, starting with where does your monomer come from to how do you make the polymer? You make this wonderful polymer. It's infinitely recyclable. It comes from, you know, let's say some easy to come by biomass, but if it has terrible properties, it doesn't matter. So it's also got to have the properties. And then at the end of the game, you also ideally want your polymer to be biodegradable. Let's say you have this perfect, infinitely recyclable material. It's cheap, has amazing properties, um, but you can't rely on people to put everything in the recycling bin. So about a third of all plastic produced ends up in the environment. I don't think I have to, you know, uh, convince everyone that there's an issue with plastics in the ocean and plastics in the environment. So ideally, um, even if your plastic can be perfectly recyclable, you want it to also be biodegradable because some, some amount of it's always going to leak into the environment. So you want it to be able to break down into something that's not toxic uh, and and benign over a relevant time scale. If it degrades over a thousand years, that's not good enough. Uh, but you don't want it to degrade while you're using it. So it's there's there's so many uh, boxes you have to tick. That's why it's such a difficult problem to go after. But we're starting at the very beginning with the chemistry to try to go after new materials because if you want to do something that hasn't been done, uh, you've got to start in a different place and make new materials that have the same properties as existing materials, so we can try to think about replacing them. Um, so. Hopefully, uh, we can do this sooner than later. But this is the kind of challenge you, you spend a career on, and never, you know, you never fully solve the problem. But sure. I, I hope we can we can knock out a few of those. This is a challenge that, um, as listeners, and just speaking with you, we are all grateful that you are taking on. Uh, all right, it, it just what a in, aside from being just intellectually challenging and engaging the the real world impact is immense uh, almost immeasurable right it's just um, to to be able to to produce these kinds of chemically recyclable plastics and and have these things degrade when they happen to just leach out into the environment and all that it, it that's that would be amazing so i absolutely commend you for for working on that and one thing that leads me to is the 
the challenge and resolve that it would take to do that is in itself immense. And um, you are, uh, you know, I, you've you've definitely been acknowledged several times as a brilliant mind, and I, I'll repair it that all over. And for those listening, if you can't tell already, Brooks is freaking smart, man. But one of the most impressive things about you, Brooks, is is that resolve that you described you had to have. Um, you know, making, spending a couple months trying to make a catalyst, doing one reaction and finding out, dang it, that doesn't work. And, you know, time to go back to the drawing board and do it again. Situations like that. And I'm kind of just curious before we go, for you, where do you think that developed, that the resolve to be able to handle that? So I started racing bikes in high school and I raced up through grad school. Grad school is not great for uh, physical fitness. <laughs> I started tapering off through, through grad school. Um, you know, those failed reactions require your time. And uh, I raced bikes. And one thing you learn pretty quickly in bike racing is that you're not always the best. Um, you're not always having, you know, you're not always on your, your best day. But I had this philosophy, I'd rather finish last than quit first. And so I apply that philosophy to a lot of things. It doesn't mean I, I, I decide I'm going to make polymers and do that for the rest of my life and never reevaluate my goals. But when I'm working on something, it's very easy to want to give up. You know, you, I mean, imagine spending two years trying to make a molecule. One year and 11 months in, you still have no idea if it's going to work, right? And so you have to kind of make up in your mind, I'm not giving up on this. Either, <laughs> either my postdoc ends or I make this molecule. <laughs> So that is that is the perspective I've I've had on things is I'm not going to go down a dead end road. You have to constantly reevaluate like, OK, you know, it doesn't matter how hard you work. If you're heading towards a dead end, you're never going to solve the problem. But if you feel confident and you have no reason to think that the problem's not solvable, I would rather keep going. So the philosophy I have behind projects I work on is to do things that are worth failing at. So even if you fall short it was worth the failure. Right, uh, right. You find another problem that's worth failing at. And if you can solve 1% of the failure-worthy prob, you know, problems, then you, you're still successful. And so um, learning how to lose 99.9% .9 of your bike races um, <laughs> is is a, a, a good thing to, to have and not give up and then you know, show up for another bike race. All right, everybody, you heard it. Go find a bike, start racing. Yeah. <laughs> no. So that's that's it for me, Brooks. That's the, all the questions I have. Um, uh, if they, unless there's anything else that uh, you didn't get to talk about that you feel you'd like to add, then that's it. Um, I guess one final thing I'll say is that you don't always get to decide what you discover. So we ended up developing this new class of you know these polyacetals, polymers that have been around forever. We discovered they had these new properties. But it was not on purpose, right? We were making polymers for batteries. We didn't say, all right, tomorrow we're going to go make polymers with polyolefin-like properties that can be chemically recycled and that we could get 98% recovery. We never would have been able to sit down with a piece of paper and come up with that idea. But we were opportunistic. That's much of science is opportunistic. Many of the great discoveries you never could have envisioned. You know, I like to think of a lot of research. You know, it's hypothesis-driven. But what you're really hoping is that you discover something something weird happens, something that wasn't supposed to happen happens. And so imagine you're, you know, in Western Europe and you say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to sail West and find a new trade rate to India, trade route to India. Well, if you make it there, hypothesis driven, um, great. 
your your hypothesis is true. You found a new way uh, to the other side of the world. But what would have what would be even better is if you discovered an entirely new continent along the way, and you couldn't have ever predicted what that continent would look like or what resources it would have. You just sort of put faith in the process that if I go looking in enough directions, hopefully one day I'll find something really cool, really useful, um, but something that I could never have really predicted. And so that is kind of an approach I take to research as well. And it's it's scary because you're going into a dark room looking for a light switch, but you just put faith in the process. There's got to be a light switch in here and you use your skills and your experience uh, to get in there and, and look around. And um, and that's, you know, again, that's we never could have, you know, started off from scratch and made these polymers. We don't know where we're going to go next. We have no idea which of our ideas are going to lead us to, you know, amazing places or which ones are going to be uh, dead end roads. Um, but, you know, if you're in the research field out there, you have to appreciate the process and focus on that and then let that lead you uh, to, you know, the interesting results that you'll hopefully get. But that takes resolve. Yeah. <laughs> Beautifully put, Brooks. Brooks, every time we we speak, and especially when I get to hear you talk about science, it's uh, it's always a pleasure. Genuinely, uh, I, I love the way you're able to take these complex processes, like talking about functional groups as words in a sentence, and uh, break down these crazy ideas that you have. So, thank you so much again for for coming onto the show and just for talking with me about all that you do. Absolutely, and it's not about being the smartest person in the world. I'd say. I'm, I'm from Mississippi, so I think simply, okay? And so it's more about breaking things down into those very simple ways uh, and, and that my mind can understand. And, and that's what allows me to, to at least keep moving forward. So don't worry about being super smart. Just think simply. I, what Brooks is saying is right, but he's going out of his way to be especially humble. And I'm just going to point that out for everyone to talk about, again, how great Brooks is. Dr. Brooks, excuse me. My mom calls me Brooks, so you can call me. Oh, well, that's all right. I'm glad that we have that strong of a relationship. Yes. <laughs> all right, man. Well, that's all I got. Thank you again, and uh, you have a beautiful rest of your day, and please say hi to Emily for me. Will do. Thank you. All right, man. Take care. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. Again, my guest was Dr. Brooks Abel. He is an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please feel free to reach out at polymersciencepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jacob Sheckman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.